We're continuing our study of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And as I said when we began this series a few weeks ago, the author is taking us on a journey with him as he considers how to live wisely in a world full of suffering. And as he takes us on this journey, he occasionally brings us on some of the dead ends that he traveled. Places where we don't see how to live wisely, we see how not to live wisely. He shows us some of the wrong answers. And that's especially clear in our passage today. Because at face value, some of the things the author is saying seem to be contradictions. Well, if you're saying this and this, how does that work together? And some of the other things he's saying seem to be clearly not in line with what the Bible teaches. But what he is doing is following certain worldly observations to their logical conclusion. He wants us to see what he has seen in his search for wisdom. And so his target today is the idea that humans are no different than the beasts. It's an idea that is increasingly popular in our world today as more and more people abandon belief in God, that we are no different, maybe even no better than the beasts. So as we consider that question today, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3.16. And we're going to read beginning in chapter 3, verse 16, through the end of chapter 4, which is verse 16. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, let us hear the word of God. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. 
The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Amen. Let us pray. O God, we give thanks for Your Word. And as we come and we sit before Your Word, and as I come, O Lord, to preach Your Word, I ask that Your Word might go forth as the rain did overnight and this morning. For You sent the rain to fall on the earth to give life and help things grow. So may your word fall now on us and help us to grow, O oh God, to grow more like Jesus and to grow in our love of you. God, please use me in spite of my sin to faithfully proclaim your word and give us ears to hear your word today. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have spoken in your word and that you would mold us and shape us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our big question again this morning is, how do we know for sure that humans are better than beasts? And if you'd like to follow along or take notes, there's an outline provided in the bulletin for you as we try to answer this question. How do we know for sure that humans are better than beasts? And so our passage starts in verse 16. And the author tells us the world is not the way that it should be, that we look And where we expect to find justice, there's wickedness. And where we would hope to find righteousness, there's wickedness. That even though we expect to see people doing the right thing, too often we see people being wicked. In fact, too often we expect we should be doing the right thing, and instead we are doing the wrong thing. And that didn't seem right to the author. Especially because he's saying... Isn't God going to judge the righteous and the wicked? Why does it seem that no one lives like we will be judged for that? Instead, he says, men and women live like beasts. 
that according to the author of Ecclesiastes, God wants us to see that we live like beasts. We see in verse 18, it says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. The Bible says that God is testing us to see if we notice that we're acting in a beastly way. Can we see that we are no longer acting in ways of righteousness and justice? Can we see that we, in so many ways, have become beastly? Now, to be fair, there are some ways that we are not at fault for because we are like the beasts. He points out in verses 19 through 20 that humans live and die just like the animals. The kind of stuff that kills animals kills us too. And when our bodies die, we decompose just like animals' bodies. And so we don't seem all that different. And in that respect, just looking at life under the sun, so to speak, we don't appear to have any advantage over the beasts. But the author here is not just making biological comparisons. He is making moral comparisons. He is suggesting that our wickedness is beastly. That instead of resembling our Creator as we were intended to, we are resembling the creatures here on earth. And just as the animals act out of self-preservation and focusing only on the here and now, so also men and women today act out of self-interest and the satisfaction of their immediate cravings. Consider our Old Testament reading from Genesis 25. That Jacob and Esau were twins, but even at birth, Esau seemed very beastly. Came out of the womb red, covered in hair. Maybe you have seen pictures, or maybe your own child came out red and covered in hair. But this is like a real outdoorsy kind of guy. An outdoorsy huntsman who would hunt game, and he'd love to be out doing outdoorsy, beastly things. A man of the wild. And one of these times, he came back from being a man hunting. And he returned so hungry that he traded his birthright as the firstborn for a bowl of stew. Like an animal, Esau did not value future things he could not see. He acted only to satisfy his cravings and preserve his life. And so when you look at Esau, it appears that he especially is no better than the beasts. This view of humanity as merely a beast is increasingly more common in our world today. As people abandon belief in God, we can view life from a merely naturalistic perspective, what Ecclesiastes calls life under the sun. And that perspective says that we are just evolved mammals. No more valuable or dignified than a monkey or a dog. Some even suggest that morality itself, the idea of good versus evil, is some social construct that needs to be done away with. That we need to live more in line with nature than these concepts of morality. I saw this idea clearly in a book I read last month called Where the Crawdads Sing. It's a novel written by a zoologist about this girl who grows up on her own as kind of a wild child out in the marshes of coastal North Carolina. 
And this girl sees herself and all the people in the community as if they are just animals. She sees them in naturalistic terms, seeing everything through the lens of nature, that nature is her truth. But the novel leaves you with this disconcerting notion that morality should be whatever is natural, whatever is self-protecting and self-preserving. And I got to say, those conclusions left me uncomfortable as something truly wicked is justified as natural, needed, and good. And that is the scary thing about this natural perspective. That if we only view ourselves from a biological perspective as no different than the beasts, then we are going to end up in some similarly disturbing places. It's beliefs like those that have justified genocide and eugenics. It's beliefs like those that justify racism and tribalism. It's beliefs like those that justify putting down disabled and infirm people like they are animals. The author of Ecclesiastes wants us to look at the natural world and see that we do have these beastly tendencies, but we should be better than the beasts. And in chapter 4, the author helps us to see here are some ways to live better than the beasts. He's using natural wisdom here. He, again, is not, he's not looking up to God yet. He is not looking to the Word of God yet. He's saying, if you just look at nature, we can see ways to be better than nature. Bad things nature does that we should avoid, and good things nature does that we should also do. And so I want to show us four of these ways in chapter 4 using some common ideas and idioms. So first, in verses 1 through 3, we are shown that we can do better than only the strong survive. The author describes how he sees so much oppression in the world. And by looking at the world, it looks like so many people are born just into a miserable existence because they are born under powerful people that will oppress them. And it teaches us only the strong survive. That so many suffer and die because they can't make it in this life. But when you take that natural idea of only the strong survive and you apply it to humans, it feels cruel and awful. The author is even saying that if you want to live that way, if you want to live as if only the strong survive, it would better, be better not to be born. It would be better not to bring people into the world than to give them a miserable existence. And he's using these shocking words to show us that we should not mirror nature's cruelty by oppressing one another. That we need to do better than only the strong survive. That we should not be like nature in that way. So that's the first point he's making here. Second, we see in verses 4 through 6 that we are shown that we can do better than dog eat dog. The author describes how so many people work hard just to outdo their neighbors. It's the stories in athletics of the people who didn't make the Super Bowl or the championship sitting there and they're just watching the other team win. Just watch motivating, envy, just like, I'm going to be better. I'm going to win next year. 
that sense that we need to do it, that we are going to do whatever it takes to get the job, to make the sale, to earn the promotion, whatever it takes, that like animals scratching and clawing for food and territory, men and women can ruthlessly compete with one another for the rewards of this life. Now, the remedy, we are told, is not to just be lazy like a fool, but to be content, to work quietly and peaceably among one another instead of scratching and clawing for whatever we can get. And so in that way, we are told we can be better than the beasts by setting aside this dog-eat-dog mentality. The third thing we are shown in verses 7 through 12 is more of a positive example. We are shown that we can do better with a pack mentality. That looking at nature, we can see how animals find safety and security in groups. And the same is true for humans. That if we work and toil and build up our bank accounts and what we have made, and we don't have anyone to share it with, we're kind of just like a dragon sitting on a pile of gold under a mountain. Just sitting there, all by ourselves, rotting. Instead, we are told that two are better than one. We are told a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We're being told that it's good to be married. It's good to have a family. It is good to live in community with friends. It is good to have people who pick you up when you fall down. That we can learn from the beasts how to be better. Because we are better together. So he's pointing us in that direction. And then the fourth thing he points out in verses 13 through 16 is that we can do better with a good top dog. That the author of Ecclesiastes tells a story about an old and foolish king who no longer listened to the people he ruled over. And he ruled badly. And that king was eventually replaced by a wise and poor youth who was brought from prison up to the throne because he ruled well. Well, groups of animals often have leaders, usually an alpha male of some kind, sometimes an alpha female. And that animal protects and leads the group. But often they lead through power and force. We are told here that we are to lead through listening and serving and caring for those under us. That we should desire people in power who are wise men and women who will serve. And even though those leaders do not last forever, we should still continually seek wise leaders because we are better with a good top dog over us. So the author of Ecclesiastes shows us these four lessons from nature about how to be better. How to be better than the beasts. Because as much as someone might say that we are no different than the animals, well, we might not be different, but we're definitely better or superior. We all feel better. We all feel superior to the other beasts. Because even if we are merely beasts, we're at least the best of the beasts. But why do we feel so strongly about that? Why are we trying so hard to be better and noble and moral if we're just beasts and all that matters is survival and preservation and satisfying our cravings? 
Why do we have such a deep desire not just to be stronger and more secure, but also morally better? Why is it that wickedness appalls us so much? It's because in some way we're moral beasts. And to get back to the very first verse of our passage, we are bothered when we see wickedness instead of justice. We are bothered when we do not see righteousness. Why does it bother us to see the oppression of the poor? Why do we feel compelled to protect the vulnerable? Why do we see puppies as cute and not easy prey? Why is that? It's because as beastly as all of us are, there's something in us that separates good and evil from survival. And the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to point us in the right direction. Can we tell what makes us different from the beasts? Because looking at the natural world, it is hard to find a good answer. Are we just further on the evolutionary scale than all the other beasts and they're eventually going to catch us? What is the difference here? The answers of the natural world do not satisfy. And so we need a different answer, an answer from someplace else. And the answer is revealed to us in Scripture that we are made a lot like the other beasts. But humans alone are made in the image of a good and holy God who promises to judge the righteous and the wicked. God tells us a time will come when He will judge the world. And yeah, when we look at the world, we don't see that judgment. What we see is powerful people oppressing the weak and they get away with it. We look and we see Bodies growing old and dying and decaying, and we don't see judgment. We cannot see God's judgment now. But our inability to see it does not make it any less real. We must be able to see that there are higher purposes than self-preservation and satisfying our cravings. We need to live in light of this judgment. And that's the question he's getting us to. At the end of chapter 3, in those last two verses there, he asks really good questions. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? And then just a little later, who can bring him to see what will be after him? See, right now with our eyes, we cannot see the judgment of God. And so we have to believe it by faith. Believe what we cannot see yet have been told. And we need to prioritize righteousness over our beastly impulses now. That was the lesson of our New Testament reading from Luke 16. That Jesus told us that parable of a rich man who dies and goes to hell and he faces the fiery judgment of God for his wickedness. And he is there and he begs that Lazarus, this man who is in heaven now, would come down and speak to his five brothers to warn them to repent of their wickedness so they do not end up like the rich man. And Abraham tells him, they have all the warning they need. They have all the warning they're going to get in the Word of God. And that is all the warning we get as well. We get a warning 
in the Word. We do not see that judgment. We are simply told of that judgment. But here's the tricky part. Even if we hear of that warning and we believe that judgment is coming, we are still in trouble because we know our beastly thoughts and attitudes and desires and actions. We know that we are more like Esau and the rich man, satisfying our cravings and not worried about future implications. And it's good to know that judgment's coming, but it kind of leaves us feeling guilty and doomed if we know it is coming. But thankfully, God has revealed a way to withstand that holy judgment. And it is not by reforming ourselves to become noble beasts. It is by trusting in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, that we withstand the judgment. Because Jesus is the only one who ever lived on earth in perfect righteousness. And even though he lived perfectly, he was put on trial. And at that trial, in that place where there should have been justice, there was only wickedness. As he was wrongly condemned to die by jealous leaders, a pack of jealous leaders who conspired to have this poor, youngish, would-be king killed. No one was there to comfort Jesus. No one was there to pick him up when he fell down because his disciples abandoned him. He was at the mercy of beastly self-interest. That's exactly how nature works. Like a feeding frenzy in the wild as the masses shouted, crucify him, crucify him, because the compassion and mercy that Jesus showed to others looked like weakness. The good news, though, is that our righteous God raised Jesus from the dead as a heavenly declaration that that guy is righteous. He overruled the injustice of their verdict as an early glimpse into the judgment that is to come. We see Jesus publicly declared as perfect, as righteous, as unbeastly. And he is set forth as the model for the life that we should live. That we should resemble him more than the beasts of the earth. But thanks be to God that we are not judged based on how well we resemble him. God's standard is too high. And so Jesus takes his very own righteousness and he wraps it around us when we trust in him. And says, you're safe here. I will protect you like a mother bird putting my wing over you. I will protect you from that judgment with my righteousness so you can stand no matter how beastly you have been. And so this morning you may be thinking, Sounds nice, but I've been a real beast. I make Esau look like a civilized man. Jesus hung on the cross, and to the very people who had put him there, he said, Father, forgive them. You have not been more beastly than they have. There is forgiveness for you. You may be thinking, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'm still pretty beastly myself. We are told in the Word That anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. The power of the Spirit is with you. And yes, sin still lingers, but the power of Christ is working to put that to death in you. Or maybe this morning you're feeling like, I wish I had someone with me. 
that I know two are better than one, but I feel like just a one right now. Look around because you have brothers and sisters in Christ here at church. And you have one who has promised never to leave you or forsake you, even in death. And so until the day that Jesus returns or He calls you home and back into the dust, the Spirit of Christ will indwell you to make you wise and loving, content and righteous. And that is how we live together as this pack in the church. Serving our young King who reigns forever and ever. All glory be to Him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Jesus reigns over us and He reforms us as well. We can't do it on our own. And so God, forgive us for our beastliness. Forgive us for the ways in which we live as if there will not be a judgment day. Help those who are struggling with the guilt of their own sin, the shame that they feel for how they have acted and thought. Help them to know that there is forgiveness in Jesus, that He washes it all away in His blood. Help them to know they can stand at the judgment day in Him. Remind us, O God, that though the beasts may rage around us in so many ways, You are with us. And though Christ suffered and died at their hands, He rose again, and so will all who trust in Him on that great and last day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.